Good new week to all of you. What is happening? You're back for a brand new episode of People Are Wild. And I'm still Kim, and I have an enormous amount of energy right now, and I think it's because I may or may not have drank a monster energy drink to record this tonight, so who knows where this is going to be going. Anyways, I am still Kim. I'm still your friendly neighborhood ER nurse, here to help muddle through medical cases and topics like only I can, using copious pop culture references, or at least as many as I can see fit. This week is exciting because Becca on The Bachelorette has it narrowed down to two guys, and I'm going to go on record right now and say that I think she's gonna pick Garrett. I'm putting it out there. I'm gonna let it hang. I could be wrong or right, but I stand by that fact that if you roll up to meet somebody while driving a minivan, you're probably destined for greatness. And I don't say that because I drive a minivan. Or am I saying that because I drive a minivan? I mean, I do drive a mom van, and it is amazing. It has so much room for gear, a pretty sizable tank of gas. It's perfect for my travel nurse life. Anyways, if you think that this means that I'm done making Bachelorette references, joke's on you because Bachelor in Paradise starts August 7th. However, due to my assignment winding down here in New England, and it's actually a rainy New England night right now, I actually might not be making that many references, as I'll be moving about the country, going from East Coast to West Coast by the end of August. That will be a whole experience and a half to drive coast to coast for the third time in less than two or three years. I think it's two years at this point. Oh, the life of a travel nurse. It never ends. But I get to see so much of this beautiful country, and I get to meet some cool people along the way that I've either worked with or have become friends with in some way, shape, or form. But let's go ahead and get into this week's episode. So I have lit my Superman prayer candle, which smells like truth, justice, and the American way. And I've listened to Huey Lewis and the News' Power of Love on loop repeat for about an hour. So you know that I am ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. So I need to give you guys a bit of a background as to what inspired, I suppose, this episode. So you guys know how you, I know I, have that sort of Netflix queue and watch list on like Hulu or Amazon Prime that you swear to all your friends you're going to get around to watching that show they keep telling you about, but you basically end up rewatching a show or a movie you've seen approximately 6,000 times. And you know what I'm talking about. Like when your friend comes up to you and they're so totally stoked on the show they watch and they're like, oh, you have to watch The Crown. And you go and you're like, yeah, totally. I will add that to my list. But then you get home and you're faced with that daunting task of starting a new show, or you can rewatch It's Always Sunny or Parks and Rec for the millionth time, you choose the latter. So for me, my go-to rewatch show is usually Smallville. You know, that show about Clark Kent's teenage and early adult years that ran for a decade or so on the WB slash CW. It was the WB when I was growing up. UPN, WB. I am like a relic. I am the crypt keeper, if you will. I keep the 90s alive in my heart and in my fanny pack. But Smallville was my show for a long time to not only watch in real time, but rewatch for the umpteenth time. And right now, it's a little bit weird watching it. Mostly because the actress that played Lois Lane's cousin was Allison Mack. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because that's the actress who was the number two in command for the Nexium cult that's under investigation for sex trafficking. And if you haven't read up on that, oh my gosh, make yourself your best cup of tea and sit down and just 
go for that deep dive because it's unbelievable and you might need to come up for air a few times because it's that deep of a dive. Now, recently on A&E, Elizabeth Vargas profiled it on her show, what is it, Cults and Extreme Beliefs. So if you want a starting point, definitely check out that episode. And if you aren't watching that show in general, that episode will rope you right in. But coming back around towards Smallville, it was pretty damn good at nurturing cult leaders. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Although heaps of people from that show have been in legal trouble as of late. Like John Snyder, like Dukes of Hazard fame, and he was actually Jonathan Kent on Smallville, recently filed paperwork, I guess, asking the judge of his alimony trial to let him go to jail because he can't pay the alimony. And Sam Jones III, he played a main character named Pete Ross for the first three seasons of the show, but in real life, he was convicted of conspiracy to possess illegal drugs with the intent to distribute. And this was all a part of a DEA sting operation. And in fact, in December 2010, he pled guilty to conspiracy. And in 2011, he was sentenced to 366 days in federal prison and three years of probation. But he made a return to acting. So I'm always confused by how Hollywood and sports and music are the only places where you can be accused of heinous crimes, murder, sexual assault, all of that sort of stuff. And people will still praise and laud you and say that you're making a comeback. Looking at you, Mel Gibson, R. Kelly, Ugh, the list can go on and on, never mind. As much as I would gladly go into celebrities and their legal troubles, God, I would love to do that. I need to focus up. That is not what this podcast is about. So Smallville did great homages to their predecessors. They did casting with actors across the board who had ties to Superman. Margot Kidder, Terry Hatcher, the always handsome Dean Kane, and Christopher Reeve himself, all had turns on Smallville playing characters integral towards young Clark Kent's plotline towards becoming Superman. Now, Christopher Reeve's first guest appearance was emotional and poignant. He played a character called Dr. Virgil Swan, who was a scientist who had devoted his life to studying the planet Krypton and its language. So who better than him, this character, to be a guide to young Clark Kent? And plotline aside, it was a beautiful way of passing on the legacy of Superman from Christopher Reeve to Tom Welling, who was the actor who played Clark Kent in Smallville. I found myself thinking while watching this episode recently about the accident that caused Christopher Reeve's paralysis. How would you be able to process that in one moment you were riding a horse, something you'd done numerous times, and the next instant you were thrown off and couldn't move anything from your neck down, not a finger or a toe, and in Christopher's case, now you couldn't even breathe on your own. There was the panic, the anxiety, this fear of the unknown that I can't even begin to imagine. So for Cameron Zick, like Christopher Reeve, he didn't have to imagine this, he actually lived it. So Cameron had left for the summit of Mount Sneffels which is a Colorado 14er, a mountain that goes above 14,000 feet. And he left it at about 9 a.m. to try and avoid, even in the springtime, an evening snowstorm that was forecasted. Now, if there's one thing I could tell you is that while living in Colorado, it was not uncommon to get spring snowstorms. And when they came in, they could dump a lot of snow even in one little bit of time. Now, in Cameron's group of friends, there were six of them, and they all had been friends since college. They had all reunited four years after graduation to hang out and do a little bit of hiking. So they started up the trail amid spring flowers and vibrant green trees, but soon they gave way to waist-deep snow etched with little rivulets of snow melt. Two miles of deep, crusty snow delivered them to a talus field. Now, at this point, 
it should be noted that half of the group, including Cameron, came a little bit underdressed for snow. And so less than halfway to the summit, they all decided to side with safety and err on the side of caution and descend. Mountain was still going to be there. After all, they had come out there for fun and camaraderie and not to break any records or the like. On the hike back down, they passed a five-foot boulder with a great view of Mount Sneffels. They all scrambled to the top and set up a camera on a tripod. Their reasoning was that if they couldn't make it to the summit, at least they could still get that money shot, right? Now, as they down-climbed, one of Cameron's friends, Michael, jumped off the rock into a pile of fluffy snow, landing on his side. And that looked like fun. After all, these are guys in their 20s. They're hanging out. They're having fun. They're college bros. Now, during this whole hike, Cameron had erred on the conservative side since he was dressed in shorts, but now felt like the right time to soak up the snow. He figured he would warm up on the hike down. So Cameron planned out his moves and scrambled down to the spot on the rock that looked like it had a good angle to dismount from the boulder. But as he maneuvered, his foot slipped on a bit of ice and it sent him falling headfirst. The second he landed in the snowbank, Cameron knew something was wrong. His head was submerged in the snow, his body straight up in the air, like a light post driven into concrete, and Cameron couldn't move his arms or his legs. When he screamed for help, he opened his mouth and swallowed snow, inadvertently suffocating himself. For a moment, he stopped to listen for help coming, but all he heard was the laughter from his friends. The bros didn't realize something was up. So Cameron's mind started racing. What if no one comes to help? And that idea sucked at Cameron's energy and his air. But then he reminded himself, I'm 25 years old. There's no way my life is ending in a three-foot pile of snow. So he gathered a breath and stopped struggling, hoping his friends would realize that he was in trouble. And almost immediately thereafter, they did. The laughter stopped. And Cameron felt his head move out of the snow and into the light as Michael lifted him by his ankles. Cameron immediately told his friends that he had lost all movement below the neck and to be very careful. From his awkward upside-down angle, he looked around at the group, all of whom stood in stunned silence. Immediately, two of his friends, Drew and Ben, took off down the mountain in search of help. Michael and his other friends, Sean and Spencer, stayed with him. Michael slowly lowered Cameron down flat onto the snow that just moments before had trapped him. Michael then laid behind Cameron and rested Cameron's back and neck on his stomach, figuring it was the most flat and most comfortable way to hold his spine in alignment. As the evening progressed, the forecasted storm rolled in with flying snow and falling temperatures. Snow accumulated on Cameron's limp body, but he felt no sensation from anywhere but his face. Michael, still lying on the snow cradling Cameron, was starting to get very cold. Now, by this time, Cameron would later be told, Drew and Ben had reached the bottom of the trail, and they ran into a stranger who gave them her phone, and they called for help. But back on the mountain, Sean and Spencer were looking around for shelter, and they spotted a lone pine in a talus field that seemed large enough to shelter all of them from the snow. Michael and Spencer were always the prepared ones on their outings, and on this particular hike, they had brought survival tools and overnight camping supplies, just in case. They began brainstorming how to get Cameron under the tree, and the planning kept Cameron's mind off of his injury. Spencer pulled an inflatable sleeping pad from his pack and blew it up. The group delicately stabilized Cameron's neck, rolled him onto his side, and slid the pad under him. Then, they finally got cell reception and happened to call their friend Josh, who, by a twist of fate, 
just so happened to be a neurosurgeon. By luck and by fate, he picked up and instructed his friends on how to move and care for someone with a neck injury. What better guidance than a neurosurgeon? Now, while they were talking on the phone to Josh, Cameron began to panic. He felt claustrophobic in his own body. Snow had accumulated on his face and he couldn't move his own arm to dust it off. His torso felt weightless, as if it was detached from his body. But he calmed himself by closing his eyes and drifting into silence. By shutting his eyes, his mind could disconnect from the terrifying sight of his paralyzed body. His friends returned and told him their plan to move him. Evenly and slowly, they lifted the sleeping pad with him on it off the ground and walked towards the tree. It was there that Spencer covered Cameron in a space blanket, and his friends took shifts keeping him warm. Each person removed his extra layers and put them on top of Cameron, while two friends curled up next to him to share body heat. Then, they'd switch. You want to talk about having the ultimate bros in your corner. Now, under the tree, all they can do was wait for rescue, and Cameron's thoughts then began to get dark and heavy. Panic and resignation came by turns, he would think to himself repeatedly, am I going to be paralyzed for life? Is a rescue team even coming? Am I going to die on this mountain? When the weight of these questions overwhelmed his silence, Cameron shouted them and obscenities into the night sky. He screamed because it was one of the only few things his body could do. His friends took turns trying to calm him down. And Cameron himself tried to focus his mind on recovery and the things he should look forward to once he could move again. But the calm was short-lived, and he would stare at his arms and legs, begging them to move, but nothing would. And this sequence would continue on repeat for five hours, until the rescue team arrived to their place. But there was no immediate salvation. The rescue crew said that a helicopter could not land on the mountain because of the storm. Cameron would have to be carried... And so a team of 10 packed him up in an insulated body bag, which is a somewhat ominous way, but the only way to describe that particular piece of equipment. And they prepared him for the five-hour trek down the mountain. The inflated body bag pressed against Cameron's entire body, and except for a hole around his face, he was essentially locked in. Alone with his thoughts, Cameron found the stop-and-go hike down to be a psychological roller coaster. He began thinking to himself, how painful would it be if I were dropped down the side of the mountain? What if we get lost or my body gives out before the hospital? And even if I make it to surgery, what is there to live for if I'm paralyzed? Cameron spent the majority of his time fighting that last question, wishing he was at the hospital. As best as he could, he forced his mind to think of people, places, and experiences that he wanted to see and relive again. He pictured himself on an open field, playing baseball with his five-year-old sister. The thought of spending just one more minute with her and many of his friends and families gave him motivation to persevere. At 1 a.m., remember, they had departed at 9 a.m. that morning. Well, technically the previous morning. And now at 1 a.m. the following morning, they reached the trailhead and the awaiting ambulance. It was a two-and-a-half-hour drive to St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction, Colorado. But before he knew it, he was in an operating room, drifting into an anesthetic daze in advance of a 12-hour surgery. He shut his eyes, and for the first time since the accident, his mind was quiet. When Cameron woke up in a hospital bed, it was there that he finally felt in control. 
finally felt able to influence the pace of his recovery. He thought back to the mountain, to the point where he almost gave up, and he was so glad he didn't. He exerted every inch of effort in his body and lifted his left index finger half an inch off the bed. There was a lot of work ahead, but hour by hour and day by day, Cameron found the strength, seizing control back from his accident and channeling it into physical therapy. Six months after his fall, Cameron was literally back on his feet, and while it might take months or years, Cameron is determined and promised his friends that they'll all be standing together on Mount Sneffels soon enough. So, let's try to break down without having a breakdown of sorts in a manageable and hopefully not too technical way what happens when a person gets a spinal injury. So just as a disclaimer, I am no neurosurgeon, I'm not Josh, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Well, no, not really, but spinal cord injuries can be really, really complicated, so I want to try and do as much of an overview without getting too technical. So stick with me on this. It's an interesting sort of thing that happens, and maybe there'll be some new things that you didn't realize that occurs during spinal injury. So the spinal cord's nerves are running continuously and constantly from the brain to the lumbar vertebrae, from your head to your butt, essentially. And the spinal column is a stack of 33 vertebrae that supports and protects the spinal cord. Now, the spinal column can be fractured or dislocated because that's what bones can do, right? Now, the spinal cord, however, can be severed or injured by swelling, bleeding, or both. And loss of spinal cord function can be complete or partial. So when you actually get more into the nitty gritty of spinal cord and spinal cord injuries, things can be termed according to the level of injury and towards whether or not the loss of spinal cord function and reflexes and sensation is a complete or partial loss of function. The level of injury is associated with the region of the spine that gets injured. So in the spinal column, it's separated into the following regions, the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and sacral regions. And below that is your coccyx, your tailbone. I can never pronounce it correctly. Like I can't pronounce that technical term correctly, no matter how hard I try. And I've been doing this for quite some time in terms of being in the medical world. It's one of those words I always trip up on. And it reminds me of the grandma from Napoleon Dynamite so much. Like, didn't she, didn't, wasn't that her thing? Was that, that's why Uncle Rico came is because she broke her coccyx ATV riding. Do the chickens have long talons? I'll tell you what, some patients' toenails are long talons. That's for sure. Now, when you hear someone is paralyzed from the waist down or the mid chest down or the neck down, it correlates to where in the spine the injury has actually taken place. So spinal injuries can occur due to many different reasons. Injuries can result from compression, such as what happens when someone sustains a fall from a height or lands directly onto their head. So sometimes people dive into shallow pools or in Cameron's case, he came down in the wrong way and he hit head first. Injuries can also be caused due to excessive flexion, extension, or rotation, which can suddenly yield a spinal cord injury, as well as other forces such as penetration, like from a gunshot or stabbing, can injure the spine and the spinal cord as well. So sometimes you will see people who get shot in the back, and you'll maybe see them on like the first 48. I think, yeah, there was, I think there was a case on the first 48 where somebody got shot in the back and they ended up being paralyzed um, as a result of that gunshot. Or actually, also it happened in X-Men First Class. 
That's how Professor X ended it up in his wheelchair. So that's not real life. That's just me being a nerd again. This whole thing I just realized is just me being a nerd. I'm sorry. I just brought it back around full circle. I, li- I linked up DC and Marvel. I'm making them come together in a happy little comic book stew. That's delicious. Anyways, spinal cord injury can also occur in situations where a person attempts to hang themselves. Finally, injury can also occur when sudden and violent deceleration happens to a person's body. Your body might keep going, but something else might stop and it causes shearing forces to happen and it could result in a major spinal cord injury as well. So that can be also sometimes what happens with different things and different mechanisms of injury is that there's a sudden deceleration that happens to the body and uh, it can cause spinal cord injury. So spinning around to do a bit of a summary because when you talk about spinal cord injuries, it can certainly get really murky. So spinal cord injury occurs when there is any damage to the spinal cord that blocks communication between the brain and the body. So it's kind of like a divorced couple. They're not talking, they're in separate rooms. Now, after a spinal cord injury, a person's sensory motor and reflex messages are affected and may not be able to get past the damage in the spinal cord. So it's kind of like there's an ultimate construction zone on your way to work and there's no detours. They just close the whole entire bridge. It's just that's no longer a path you can take. So in general, the higher on the spinal cord the injury occurs, the more dysfunction the person will experience. And again, injuries are referred to as complete or incomplete based upon whether any movement and sensation occurs at or below the level of injury. So for example, a neck level injury could cause paralysis in both the arms and the legs, which is known as quadriplegia, and it can make breathing without a ventilator impossible, which is what happened in Christopher Reeves' case. Now, an injury lower on the spinal cord might affect only the legs, and that is known as paraplegia, as well as other lower parts of the body. So sometimes you can have people who are paralyzed only from like, well, the waist down, or sometimes like their mid-thigh down. It just depends on where that injury occurs and where the loss of sensation is. So again, the spine is made up of those 33 small bones called the vertebrae. If you do more exploration into that region and you get a little bit more into what that means, you can break down the spine a little bit better. So your cervical spine is your C1 through your C8. And this is the uppermost part of the spine where the neck is located. And the C1 is the vertebra closest to the skull. Sometimes you hear something called a hangman's fracture. And studies have actually shown that even though there's been an association of hangings with the hangman's fracture, there's only a small minority of hangings that actually produce this fracture. So it happens at the C2, which is higher up on the neck, which is not a good thing in terms of being unstable and having an injury there can definitely be something that can be life-threatening. What happens is that in a hangman's fracture, there's a sudden forceful hyperextension that occurs just underneath the chin. And usually, we were talking a little bit earlier about deceleration injuries. So it usually happens when somebody is the victim of a motor vehicle accident and it's an unrestrained passenger or driver who ends up striking the dashboard or the windshield with their face or their chin. This can also occur sometimes with collisions between players and contact sports. So a hangman's fracture is definitely unstable, but 
survival from the fracture is relatively common. Actually, what you can see with it is that people will walk in to the ER and then we discover the fracture on x-rays, which actually happened to a patient that I had one time who was a rodeo rider who got bucked off and hit with such a force that it hyperextended and he just had neck pain for a while and a little bit of sensation, little weirdness that he thought was just whiplash, but it turns out he actually had a hangman's fracture on his C2. So it was like, all of us were like, please keep wearing this brace. So we put him in a neck brace and he followed up with ortho and he followed up with everything. You keep it immobilized. It's a broken bone. So just like you would for a broken leg, you keep it immobilized, except this is on your spine and you know, it's just at your C2 level. Nothing really big there except for your drive to you know, breathe around that area. But anyways, it's a whole thing. It's totally fine. The guy actually made a complete recovery. It was just gave us a little bit of a, a pitter patter in our heart when we just saw this guy walking in with a C2 unstable fracture. So it's definitely not something you mess with in terms of cervical fractures. Now for the thoracic spine, that's the vertebra that are T1 through T12. This is the second highest part of the spine and it spans from the upper and middle back. T1 is the closest to the neck and T12 is more towards the mid part of your spine. Amy Van Dyken, if you're familiar with that, in 2014, she had an ATV accident where she ended up severing her spinal cord at the T11 level and she is paralyzed from the waist down, but she does have some sensation in her hip flexors. So that again is going through that whole breakdown of where the injury occurred versus the sensation level that comes as a result of that injury. Now in your lumbar spine, you have vertebrae L1 through the L5. If any of you have lower back pain issues or know people with that, they pretty much know their lumbar spine really well in terms of where their discs are perhaps that are bulging or where they just have injury to that area or inflammation. So L1 is the highest on the spine and the lumbar region is essentially your lower back area. So usually when you're straining or doing something and you kind of have a flare up in your lower back, it is more than likely in your lumbar spine region. And finally, you have your sacral spine, which is vertebrae S1 through S5, and this is between the lower back and the tailbone, with S1 being the highest on the spine. So when I say the highest on the spine, I'm just saying that it's the highest in that region. Like the lumbar region is the highest on the spine in relation to the lumbar spine, and that's your L1. The S1 is the highest in that lower back to tailbone region, highest on the spine in terms of the sacral. Or you could just disregard that. I don't know. I mean, if it's confusing, I totally understand. But anyways, your sacral area is also part of those vertebrae. So people can get paralysis and spinal cord injury at different points and they can lose sensation and they can lose mobility in different points. There are some people who can't feel anything from essentially their knees down, but they're partially paralyzed. There's actually an interesting documentary that I watched not too long ago about um, a woman that was partially paralyzed from her knees down and walked with braces. So it's interesting because then you see people like Christopher Reeve, like Amy Van Dyken, who have these more involved levels of paralysis. So it's 
still this spinal cord injury, obviously, but it's interesting just how it can affect specific towards what part of the spine was involved. So healthcare providers, neurosurgeons, the big kahunas, the big tunas of the of the neurology world often refer to specific vertebra associated with the spinal cord injury levels. So like I said, Amy Van Dyken had an injury at T11. Other people will say, oh, I have an injury at T8. Or, you know, in Christopher Reeve's case, he was in the cervical spine. So that sort of might clear up why injuries that are higher up in the spine are often more devastating. Now, this is just a complete aside, but speaking of injuries higher up, if you have the chance, look up internal decapitation because it's not like you actually are decapitated in your own body, but you kind of are. It's a total mind trip. It'll make you go, what? And blow your mind more than Keanu Reeves was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Just trust me on that. Although I digress. So the most important and sometimes perhaps most frustrating thing to know is that each person's recovery from spinal cord injury is different and unique to that person. So take, for example, the one patient that I took care of that had a spinal cord injury due to being bucked off a horse and landing on their head. So he was actually ended up being airlifted from our hospital to another hospital with really, really world-renowned neurosurgery capabilities after we had stabilized this patient's spine. While he was at our hospital, he had no feeling from essentially his mid-chest kind of nipple line region down. He couldn't move anything. And we had to watch all of our movements with him in order to not further any obvious spinal injury that he had sustained. And the patient was pleasant and in good spirits and positive, but I think we all understood that the full severity of his injury when he got to us was still unknown. So sometimes I think that whole ignorance is bliss thing can play a huge factor into having a more positive outlook, even in the face of a grim injury. And that's not to say that people don't have bad days. People have bad days regardless of what condition or injury they have. So everybody has bad days within it. It's just that I see people in the ER when they are experiencing this life-changing, perhaps lifelong injury as it's happening, as it's just happened. So it's really, really important for us in the ER to be honest and communicate fully with patients and their friends and their family members because these are the people that are going to be taking care of this person and perhaps might be taking care of this person in this condition, in this state for the rest of that person's life. So it's important to establish honesty with compassion very, very soon. So just as a quick side note, after that, taking care of that patient, I was completely turned off of riding ever horseback. Um, I'm terrified of it. I don't ever want to ride a horse. I barely even want to look at horses. I've seen many horse-related injuries due to people being bucked off of them or falling off and sustaining horrible injuries like broken ribs and chest tubes and blood in their lungs and all this bad stuff and being trampled by their own horses. I know it's an amazing sport and it could be this beautiful therapeutic hobby for people, but if you find me on one of those, I am in trouble, okay? So to channel Simon Cowell, it's going to be a no from me. What happens though when you're outside the hospital atmosphere and you're hours away from help and disaster strikes like it did for Cameron and his friends? What would you do in that situation? You know that your friend needs your help, but 
you don't know what to do just yet. Try and keep this in mind. The most important thing, the number one thing is to immobilize that neck. So you need to hold the victim's head in your hands and keep it from twisting. So maybe the best way to create a temporary neck brace with the things that you have on is to take a jacket and lie it flat on the ground and zip it up. Roll the midsection from the bottom up leaving the arms out wide, and then slide the rolled up jacket under the patient's injured neck and tie the arms together around the neck. You also want to support the spine. So move the spine as little as possible and ensure that it stays in a flat, even line. To move the injured person into such a position, get help. One person should always be supporting the neck at all times, and the other people should carefully roll the injured person, keeping the neck in line with the torso onto their side, and then slide a flat surface, such as a sleeping pad like they did for Cameron, underneath the person. And if you have to, move the victim. So transport can increase the risk of twisting the spinal cord, but if the elements are not in your favor, exposure is more deadly. So only move if the elements pose a serious and immediate safety risk. Never attempt to move a person with a spine injury by yourself. The more hands, the safer for you and especially for the victim. So slide your arms underneath the injured person or the sleeping pad and intertwine your arms, cat's cradle style, underneath his or her spine. Everyone should lift and move at an even pace. Go slow and communicate continuously. This will let the injured person know what is going on at every step, quite literally, as well as your team of people all being on the same page during every step as well. Now, obviously, all the tips mentioned are just that. They're tips. If you want to get the further training on what to do in emergency situations specific to wilderness, there are a few fantastic organizations, such as the Wilderness Medicine Institute, which is who I train with, that teaches lovers of the outdoors, wilderness first aid, and first responder skills. So I highly encourage you to check them out. In fact, I'm going to post a link in the show notes to them. You don't have to be a medical professional to take these classes. If you like going camping, you can take a wilderness first aid class, and it'll help you in terms of having at least a little bit of knowledge in the face of something that happens that goes bad. So, knowledge is power after all. And I'm all about trying to empower you guys with this podcast in some way, shape, or form. Just keep in mind that there is plenty more to talk about regarding spinal cord injuries. And trust me, I'm going to revisit this topic in the future. But consider this a bit of a lead-in for the episodes that are going to be coming up that'll revolve around shock. Because there are different types of shock And neurogenic shock is one that's a little bit more synonymous with spinal cord injuries. So when you work emergency medicine and trauma like I have, you have seen every single form of shock in some way, shape, or form. I figured maybe this would be a good way, a good little segue, if you will, into that topic. So stay tuned for that. It'll be awesome and fun to kind of dive into a little bit more about what the different types of shock are, and just what the hell shock is. So let's wrap up this episode with the one, the only, the game you love to hate or hate to love, you choose. You got what stuck where. The rules are simple. Four clues, and you tweet to me at People Are Wild with your guess. The person most correct first wins some sweet stickers, bragging rights, and the ultimate conversation starter at a dinner party. 
So let's get into it. Clue one, this happened to a 27-year-old male who apparently had nothing better to do while in between jobs, but he might not want to go into construction after this experience. Clue two, he presented to the ER with lower abdominal pain that had been at this point going on for five hours, along with a little bit of rectal burning. Clue three, the man was eventually taken to the OR where the object in question was removed from the rectum, but not before the OR team had to create a colostomy that was later reversed due to the amount of irritation in the colon at the time from the object in question in his rectum. And clue four, I'm sure the experience was something that stuck like glue for this man. So there you have it, your four clues. Again, tweet to me at people are wild with your guests, or just tweet to me in general on Twitter. It's always a fun time on there, and it's always so much fun interacting with everybody on there. In fact, this past week, a lot of you shared your own You Got What Stuck Where patient stories that left me speechless but also not really that surprised. The human body is fascinating in what it can accommodate, and maybe it's best to leave it at that. So have a great week ahead, believe in the good, practice random acts of kindness, and remember the words of Roy T. Bennett, who says, don't just learn, experience. Don't just read, absorb. Don't just change, transform. Don't just relate, advocate. Don't just promise, prove. Don't just criticize, encourage. Don't just think, ponder. Don't just take, give. Don't just see, feel. Don't just dream, do. Don't just hear, listen. Don't just talk, act. Don't just tell, show. Don't just exist, live. Hello, I'm Bonnie Lee of Whining About Crime, a story-driven true crime podcast created here in Canada. I try to examine the elements of a crime and how the motives, the victims, and sometimes even the accused stories can teach us something about ourselves and the people we encounter. Can we learn something that can be applied to our own lives? Well, there's only one way to know. You'll know that you found me when you hear me say, please, don't leave me. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. We're the Voice of the Victim podcast. There are over 700,000 sexual predators in the United States alone, and we want to help you keep yourself and your family safe. Every Thursday, we discuss cases involving some form of abuse and the horrible things abuse can lead people to go through or to do in the future. We also try to identify the missed opportunities where people could have made a difference in the future of the victim. We hope to help others know what to look for so we can protect ourselves and our children. Subscribe to us on your favorite app and help us spread our message. And remember, if you see something, say something.